Hello there, my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. According to official records, the Great White Shark has yet to be authentically recorded in British waters, though there are several very credible reports to suggest that it does already visit. The big question fishery scientists often ask is why it's taking so long, as UK waters are perfect for the species. On the other hand, even globally, it is a very rare fish. Its two closest relatives, however, have proved a lot more UK-friendly. Mako sharks have been, and poor beagle sharks still are regularly found in our coastal waters, and in the case of the latter, Britain boasts the biggest rod caught specimens taken anywhere in the world. Great whites are able to generate internal body heat which allows them to push up into cooler latitudes. Poor beagle sharks, on the other hand, actively seek out these cooler temperatures. The current world all tackle record of 507 pounds, plus the previous record, were both fish taken off the northernmost tip of Scotland in the early part of the year. And this pattern of big fish close in during the spring seems to be one that's repeated at other locations where big poor beagle sharks are present. Shark fanatic Graham Pullen knows only too well from personal experience just how big these early season inshore fish can get. But before we probe a little deeper into the specifics of monster British poor beagle sharks, I'd like to go back in time to the very start of shark fishing in the UK, when we didn't really know what we had and how those discoveries came about. So give us a quick potted history of the British shark fishing scene. Yes, it's sort of strange to think of that British fishing history, when you look at how far back trout fishing goes and freshwater fishing, right to eyes at Walton, actually there really wasn't any shark fishing done until about the 1950s. That does seem a bit weird when you think we have an incredible history of freshwater fishing, and obviously there's been commercial fishing going on for those years, so it's kind of peculiar that nobody was really shark fishing. Certainly the, well, what we call it, sport fishing for sharks, that didn't really start until the 1950s down in Cornwall back in the early 50s. A small group of people went out and started catching them. Jack Bray, Brigadier Coulter, they all sort of popularised the blue shark fishing. It was uh, Jack Bray in the 1950s that really publicised the sport that was available to be catching a shark on rod and line. But of course they were pretty well all boats then. Nothing else that was happening on a commercial scale, it was all rod and line. And then obviously it grew from there, eventually there they started using uh, commercial fishing boats, they chartered those to go out, and then as it got more popular then specialised charter boats came in. But with a lot of boats going out, there were a lot of sharks at that time around, because don't forget they weren't really targeted like they are today commercially, and that sort of grabbed the public attention. Another reason that the shark fishing was so good out of loo was the fact that there was a pilchard canning factory uh, just up the river there that they used to bring in the pilchards, net them, bring them in, process them, and, you know, a lot of people said that there's always a smell coming out of that Loo River, which I don't dispute, and, you know, the sharks were attracted to that, but the truth is, the sharks were there in numbers, because there were just a lot of numbers of sharks then, and there was a lot of pilchard shoals around, you know, it's like the herring industry in the North Sea, you know, there was a lot of herring, so they were commercially fished, therefore the predators were buying them in the shape of the giant bluefin tuna, which ironically was sort of 1940s, 1950s again. So, with access to almost unlimited rubby-dubby, or chum in the shape of the best you can get, because it's very high in content, it's a pilchard, the boats really had the best of everything there, and it was uh, inevitable that sooner or later, not just the blue sharks, but other species would get caught. 
Now, in amongst those blues, which were caught basically then just about 8 to 10 miles offshore, from what I can understand, they started to get different species of sharks. Now, in that era, it was a spin-off from, let's say, the Zane Grey era and uh, the sort of Hemingway big game fishing for marlin. And ironically, the, the Mako shark was the one that was sort of mooted as the greatest fighting shark of all time, etc. So any shark that wasn't a blue shark which generally came in, it was thought to be a Mako. But it was only when people started submitting world record claims for Paul Wiggles and Makos, they realised it was in fact quite a big distinct pattern to how to identify them. Overall, from a dead fish hanging up, there's not much you can tell really. I mean, perhaps I might be able to view them hanging up dead, but I mean, you need the jaw open really in the general shape and the colours of a fresh fish and once you see them both alive either in the water or freshly caught there's, there really is no uh, mistaking the difference between a mako and a paw beagle shark as for the differences between the two sharks really the paw beagle is a pretty short dumpy type of shark quite fat and got quite a large eye as well but then so is a mako the mako I find is generally a longer looking fish it's definitely more sleek more streamlined Overall, they look the same, but one you can't go wrong with is looking in the jaws, assuming you're close enough and you've caught one to look in the jaws. Um, you might want to look in the jaws of a Paul Beagle, but fiddling around with the teeth of a Mako shark is a whole different uh, proposition. Basically, the Mako, his teeth are, they're sort of, if you can imagine just opening your fingers, they're all, they're all in a sort of clawing position and they're all curved, they're all pointed one way and that's down the throat. So they're spread apart. They're slightly curved upwards, you know, on the general sort of longitudinal shape of them. They're long on the bottom and they're gripping at the top. And they're not cutters, they are tearing teeth, not cutting teeth. The Paul Beagle has similar teeth, but a lot, lot smaller. Once you've seen the two, you know the difference. And the Paul Beagle shark, at the base, the outside base of each triangle of each tooth, is what's called a basal cusp. That's B-A-S-A-L. It's like a base cusp of two little pinpoint pricks just standing up off the base of the where it enters the, the gum almost and that is the dead giveaway for the poor because the mako 100% does not have that so out of the two the teeth are the thing the jaws that's what tells you the difference between the two overall mako's pretty sort of slate grey they do have colour variations I have I've read stories years and years ago maybe 40 years ago around the Isle of Wight uh, a guy there used to uh, catch a sort of mottled one which he was trying to claim as a new species it wasn't it was just a poor weagle with different sort of blotchy markings on it but there's sort of slate grey at the back and creamy underneath whereas the, the mako definitely is a sort of steely blue along the side and goes to white underneath it's a totally different looking fish much much prettier fish but you know back then they both look the same, and I'm sure the Makos got mixed up with the Paul Beagles, and possibly there might have been a few records at the time that were claimed as such. Most of the Mako and Paul Beagle sharks caught then, and they weren't small fish, this is what I find strange. The Makos and Paul Beagles of those times, along the South Cornish coast predominantly, were not small fish. I would say the Paul Beagles were probably every bit over 200 pounds when they came in, which is why they got mixed up with the Mako. And the Mako average was well over 300 pounds. It's, it's no question there's a lot of 300 pounders caught. But, strangely, along this south stretch of coast, South Cornwall, really from Plymouth right down to Falmouth, with Falmouth being the hot spots. Then as the years progressed, and you know, the Blue Shark uh, were, were even even publicised even more by the Shark Angling Club of Great Britain, which you could join as a as a sort of member if you were on holiday there. It's quite easy. You just had to catch one over 75 pounds and 
at that stage they used to hang a lot up so um might take you a couple of trips you might get lucky even on the first trip that made you a member of this uh, club and you got a sort of quarterly newsletter of, of where fish were caught but nobody really knows when it first started but the pool beagle fishery on the north cornwall coast i think was started by potters that were crabbing and lobstering and were getting their pots smashed up on the bottom by sharks that were down quite close to shore i.e. within five miles now they knew that wasn't blues the blues don't do that they're an offshore they rarely come in water under about 20 fathoms which is 120 feet deep whereas these other sharks are something different but i don't honestly know exactly when it started whereas Lou and plymouth are the top blue shark ports the top port for poor eagles without a shadow of a doubt was padstow and really that's sort of purely because that was the base from where the sharks were weighed so that port got the publicity and the boats from there got the publicity but it's strange but a lot of people won't realize this that the sharks weren't caught off padstow they were caught way up the coast further up the coast of what's called the radar dishes towards heartland point in fact to be fairly specific they rarely get poor beagle sharks between tintagel you know right down to heartland point if you go east around heartland point up towards ilfracombe they don't get the poor beagle sharks up there for some reason either um, where they do get them is out offshore of it would be the northeast corner of Lundy Island. They do get them off there behind big sandbanks with a lot of tide, but that's a sort of seasonal thing. It's sort of like a June run of fish, and they're commercial to a huge, or they used to be commercial to a huge extent out off Lundy Island, which um, a lot of people didn't realise, but that was a hot spot. Never turned into a hot spot for rod and line fishing for some reason, though. Again, it wasn't so much the what we call the pack fish of 80 to 120 pounds that were caught off the North Cornish and the North Devon coast. It was big fish. I mean, really big pool wiggles. And obviously size draws all anglers. And more and more shark anglers had cut their teeth on blue sharks. They wanted to move up a league, if you like, and uh, you know move into the real big stuff. And they could do that with a pretty good chance. Obviously, there was quite a few blanks even then because they were still learning where these sharks were. But if you... Get yourself involved with a charter boat back in the, well, I guess just mid-1970s, I would say, out of Padstow, and you took one of these boats up the coast and fished huh, 200 yards off the shore. You had a pretty good chance of getting a big pool beagle around 200 pounds. Now, obviously by then they were fully established as pool beagle sharks, but the size drew a, a rather unfortunate side of angling, and that's the light tackle side. Um, people at that stage were... Uh, possibly interested in the IGFA records in fact the Paul Beagle all tackle world record you know was held um, in the UK so there's no question we got the big sharks there but there's all these different scales of tackle that you can use 50 pound tackle 80 pound tackle 30 pound tackle that's you know not too bad even 30 is a bit stupid for a 300 pound Paul Beagle in my personal opinion anyway but it got even sillier than that people were going out trying to get the um, the hero badge stamped on them with four eight twelve and twenty pound line on pool beagles and a couple of anglers going out there to be honest uh, what will we call them the old school sharkers like myself and a few others just call them the heroes of the time just used to block book all the charter boats the best boats the best tides the best weather slots and they would go out and just break off fish after fish after fish until they brought the one in that they wanted on the light line and you know some of those fish are uh, are huge catches but um, the unfortunate thing is a lot of those sharks they broke off probably with a lot of line on them you know, just got uh, wrapped up in stuff and uh, died and sunk to the bottom so 
bit stupid. I've never really got caught up in that light line fishing. I've had a little go at it, like um, a lot of fishing journalists. But I just can't afford to keep breaking sharks off like that. She's bonkers. I want to catch them. I don't want to break them off. So there was a very, very unfortunate, well, I want to say a decade. It possibly didn't last a decade of light line fishing down on the north coast there. Thank goodness, hopefully that's all finished now. It's a fashion thing. You can tell it's a fashion because it's not going now. So that was a bad side of the poor weevil shark fishing. Dead fish, you know, hanging up and being broken off any good at all. Probably great for the people selling the fishing line because, you know, everybody wanted to spool up with IGFA-rated fishing line. But, um, yeah, not good for the sharks, definitely. However, spinning off from those big sharks on the light lines, they might have caught two or three hundred pounders, but they started to be caught for 430, 440, 450 pound sharks. So the British record crept up and up and up from that uh, North Cornish coast there. And the hotspot was, without a shadow of a doubt, what we call Cambique Head. Um, there's a headland that comes out there, rocky headland that comes out, and a reef that can throw out quite a big surf. And from there, well, just running along the coast towards Crackington Haven. That was a, well, they're on top of each other. Crackington Haven is the bay from which the headland of Cambique Head comes out. So you're talking of a matter of uh, 500 yards. So very, very close to shore there, and they got some very big sharks there. From there, it, you know, those areas, the popularity waned when the fish started either going, leaving, whatever, migrating different routes. Now for, I would suggest, over 20 years, it all went very dead, very quiet on the publicity side of things. There was a poor beagle shark fishery in the early years, in the, in the sort of early early 70s off the Isle of Wight two guys called Dick Downs and Trevor Prince used to go out there and did very very well with the sharks at the back of the Isle of Wight and they caught poor beagles I think over 320 pounds now that was a rarity but off the Isle of Wight they never really got them over 400 which they did off North Cornwall and of course you're fishing further offshore so from that 20 years there was as I say a decline it was either loss of popularity loss of sharks being caught the fact that you know you didn't want to kill all the sharks and hang them all up for the hero shark we've all been there if you've come from that era it's not done now but it was done at the time and don't forget it's a big money fish the French love eating poor beagle sharks um, although they're getting protected now they obviously took a huge hammer blow from the commercial fishing in the Cornish sector, there was one report in the papers of a guy catching 122 poor beagles in one week on long lines up in the Bristol Channel and the North Cornish coast. They're all on a one-way ticket, special ferry to uh, France. Since then, I believe they've stopped poor beagle fishing uh, commercially. Not a bad thing because, you know, a, a guy can go out with a run line and if he catches one, he's had a good day, but he's certainly not going to catch 122 in a week. Leading on from that 20 years... There was a guy, Peter Scott from Dunstable, who was an enthusiast fishing out from Padstow. In fact, we used to nickname him Padstow Pete because he used to go out from Padstow so regularly. He also used to go with a friend from Boscastle. And it was such a long drag to get up the coast there to those North Cornish grounds. You come out from Padstow and you used to punch two, two and a half hours up the coast, sometimes into a nasty head sea and against the tide just to get to the mark. So Pete um, invested in a small boat. And when I say small, I think it was about 14 foot and trailed it and launched it down from Boscastle and Bude and um, used to do quite a bit of shark fishing for what we call the pack fish down there. And eventually I touched bases with Pete and we did a few trips out there and uh, change of tactics and an increase in the amount of rubby dubby or chum that I used to put in the water. I used to use a lot of trout chum, huge volumes of it. It got us some incredible shark fishing. 
and we possibly were there just as those big fish were on a comeback if you like from a 20-year layoff in fact i'm probably sure they were there anywhere it's just nobody's ever fishing for them but these fish were unbelievably close to shore i mean very very close to shore i fished off the north coast with you for these fish so i can understand why the interest is low with many miles of cliffs and precious little in the way of either shelter or accessible harbours to run to at low tide if the weather deteriorates, it can be a very limiting, even daunting place to fish, especially from a small trail boat. So tell us about how yourself and Pete Scott went about this exploration and any problems you encountered along the way. Yeah, there's all sorts of problems, you know, about exploring this part of the coastline. It's a fabulous spot to fish, but my God, it can make you sleepless nights. It gives you sleepless nights. In fact, every time I go down... North Cornwall, and I have to launch my bow, I've got a 17-footer. If I ever get it in the water, I'm always worried if I'm ever going to make it back. It's a horrible place. I mean, there's no safe port for about 20 miles of rugged coastline. There's an old saying about, uh, you know, from Pentire Point to Heartland Light, a sailor's graveyard, day or night. I'll tell you what, it's not far off. I know that was a sailing ship era, but the reason for that was when you look at the coastline and the maps and the charts, it runs... I would say northeast from Padstow up to Widmouth Bay, and then it just kicks vertically north straight up to Heartland Point. So if you're following that angled coastline in a sort of northeasterly direction along the coast in a sailing ship at night or in the fog, you're naturally going to think you're going to miss Heartland Point, and unfortunately you don't. So there's a huge number of shipwrecks there, and they do get some nasty seas and up to two knots of tides ripping up and down that Bristol Channel, so not the greatest place. The other problem, of course, is not having a big port. They dry out. The two harbours there, Boscastle and Bude, both dry out. And it's launch site problems, yes. Bude, you can launch into the river on a sort of second phase, about two hours down, three hours down. You can actually get into the river. You might have to get a, a four-wheel drive to get across the beach. A high water, sometimes you get a surf coming around what they call the barrel there. That can come right up into the um, harbour by the uh, slip there and dump the boat up and down and bang it around. So it's, it's just it's just a nightmarish place to launch, but great once you're outside past the barrel, if you ever get past the huge rollers that come in there sometimes. So a very um, inconsiderate and dangerous place, I feel. Boss Castle, okay, you don't get the surf there. You do get the ground sea coming through, but downside is it's a really ramshackle old slip and it's what I call a shallow slip so for me launching a 17 footer if I don't get a good run up with two guys ramming that trailer and boat in the water I'm never getting it off the trailer because it's boulders that stop the wheels going round and I just can't get the boat slid off so it's a sort of nightmare scenario there as well and that has really only got 45 minute slot either side of high water to get your boat off or i.e. get back in now on the subject of getting back in, we used to get to about four o'clock in the afternoon and be sitting out there sharking or fighting the fish and feel a big roller go underneath us and sort of strikes fear and sends a shiver up your spine because you think, oh my God, am I actually going to get in the harbour? The problem being, because it dries out and there's no safe sanctuary, once you're out, you're out for the minimum of 10 hours, sometimes 12. If you make a mistake in the weather forecast and you're out there, you're in deep doo-doo. There's two sort of areas two areas and two times now if you want the big fish they possibly might be there all winter if they're not there all winter and i tend to think they are definitely there march and april when we've caught the uh, big fish we have had which are sort of well you can get three to five hundreds close to shore up there it's really been in the springtime it's got to be in the springtime unfortunately the weather's never settled then and for the last two years i've never even got down there in fact as i'm i'm speaking at the moment it's horrendous weather outside it's a second 
good set of tides we've got. There's only about three sets of tides that you can do to get down there for these spring fish after which they're gone. So I'm hoping I might get one more in this year, but who knows? Who knows? It's a dangerous spot to fish. Is it worth it when you get out there? Oh, sure, it's worth it. You want to see the size of the backs and heads of these sharks when you get them up on the leader. They are just immense. I would suggest that the average weight of these sharks we're catching in the springtime, the average weight is in excess of 300 pounds. A lot of the experts, or supposed experts, used to say, you don't get big male fish, the male fish only grow to 150 pounds, and blah, blah, blah. Well, I've seen one in Padstow hanging up over 300. I had one about 330, 350 that we fought up and tagged at the boat, and that was, you know, had claspers on it, and no point uh, saying anything else, because we got the thing right on the leader, and I put the tags in. So that's all shot to pieces. I can tell you exactly, yes, there are male fish, swimming around off North Dedham in excess of 300. Obviously the bigger fish are the females. Now whether they come into the spawn or pup, which is what they think they do, nobody's ever going to know, or do they come into the breed? All I know is we get both big 300 pound males and females in the spring period. Now come about the middle of May, they're just gone. We don't know where they go, nobody knows. And of the charts I've tagged down there, nobody's ever had them come through with a tag caught from either, you know, anywhere in Europe, uh, Scotland, uh, Faroe Islands, where they get a lot. Nobody's ever done that. Okay, the other size of fish, which is the general one the angler's going to catch, we call them pack fish because you can catch more than one from one small area. They would run anything from possibly, say, 60, 80 pounds up to about 110, 120, in average, average weight. If you if had to put an average, I'd say 80, 90 pounds, you know, that would be an average pool weevil. Now most of those are caught either offshore in the deep water about five miles off the coastline there or about two miles offshore from what we call the radar dishes towards Hartland Point. So if you're at Bude to come out and hang a right as you launch a boat it's only about 20 minute 25 minute run and you're right bang on the best shark fishing grounds probably in Europe for pool beagles. Because if you're coming from Padstow it might be a two hour tonk all the way into the, the sea and the tide to get up there so Basically, in a dinghy, when we launched, we got probably two hours more shark fishing than any of the charter boats because the charter boats can't get up from Padstow. Um, you know, unless they leave very, very early in the morning, go back late at night. Uh, these fish can be anything from, say, 60 to 100, 120 feet of water. And they're living there. I think they're living there and they're feeding over the pollock on the reefs and the mackerel shoals over the reef. It's very, very rocky up there. So it's a great pack spot. As for setting up for the poor beagle sharks, I mean, to be honest, you just need to sort of upgrade a little bit from the blue sharks. The blue shark and the poor beagle shark just are not the same fighting machines. Blue sharks twist and roll around. You can use 20, 30 pound tackle for them, 20, 30 pound line. You'll have no trouble with anything that's swimming around British waters on that sort of tackle. But if you catch a 140 pound poor beagle shark or hook up to one and you're on a 20 or 30 pound tackle, when you get it close to the boat, you could be there, could be there for nearly an hour, because they just do not give up. They're very, very deep fighting shark. They can run laterally when you first hook them up, but generally they just come and start digging around the boat, just like a tuna, straight up and down. We're constantly manoeuvring the boat, trying to keep them away from the prop at the back, and even when you get them close to the leader, they still want to go around in a circle, so totally different fight to the blue shark. As for tackle... I would say 50 pound tackle minimum. There's no point pussyfooting around. I'm not a lover of light tackle fishing. You want to catch and release any shark, indeed any fish, you know, if you're tagging them, which I do a lot of tagging for the National Marine Fisheries Service, 
in America uh, with dart tags. If you want to do tagging, you want the shark in as quick as you can, unhooked or the or the hook snipped if it's taken it deep, and released as soon as you can with a tag in it. That's the general idea. Dead sharks don't tell any stories, as they say. It's the live information and data from live sharks that uh, the researchers want on their uh, data sheets. And on the reel, which choice is it then, mono or braid? Uh, you can use mono or you can use braid. I don't personally like braid. I'm just starting to get into it a little bit and I'm not generally giving it a plug. But, you know, just because a, a lot of anglers do and writers do. This braid is called Gardner GR500. Now, I was just given some for test and it's actually not even sold as a sea braid. It's a freshwater carp braid. But if you get that in the heavier strains, it's thicker diameter than normal braids. We've caught blues to oh, just over 100 pounds and common skate to 140 pounds on it. And I have to say, I've been very impressed you know, with it. It's, it's very good stuff. It doesn't uh, seem to foul up and not up in the wind as uh, finer braids do. So that's just something if you want to like, you know, if you're a lover of braid. I personally don't like it. I like the stretch, that safety stretch factor that you get with mono. And I just use 50 pound Andy premium because I've got it when I'm in the States from a supermarket cheap. It's as cheap as chips, it's as tough as old boots, very abrasion resistant, and that's just the way it goes, that's what I use. Anything else comes along, I will use, but it's definitely not going to be less than £50 strain. To a large extent, the tackle and tactics required to catch poor beagle sharks had been pretty much sorted out by those early pioneers from ports like Padstore years ago. They obviously have teeth and rough skin, and can be quite a powerful fish. What then are your preferences with regard to hand tackle and basic terminal setup to catch these North Cornish poor beagle sharks? Trace and hook? Well, just pretty well what you use for blue sharks. I mean, uh, you know, a 107699 Mustad Seamaster hook you can use, or just equally, or use the um, standard J hook, which is a Mustad 7731 Sea Demon. That's a good one. Or are we using 110 Eagle Claw, but in the O'Shaughnessy pattern? purely because they're cheaper absolutely no reason at all they're just that they're cheaper and they still catch the fish but i don't use those O'Shaughnessy's for the springtime fish i'm not using those for fish over 300 pounds i use the mustache which definitely won't open up wire trace minimum 400 pound cable seven on seven they call it 49 strand you want about four feet crimp to the hook a 4-0 black barrel swivel if you can and then a rubbing leader of say Anything minimum 250 pounds up to, I use 400 pounds handy, about say 8 feet long of that, and then another barrel swivel. Again a 4.0 size, a Barclay one, could be any mate really, I'm not in love with Barclays, it's just what I've got in the tackle box. From the rod top, all I use is a snap swivel. Make sure it's either a cross lock or a sampo, you don't want those ones that, I suppose you call them like a little link swivel that have a little piece of wire that tucks inside a piece of folded brass on a lip they will open those up trust me that's not the one to use you want the best you can use and just set your float with a with a balloon but don't blow it up just enough to support the bait you only want to support the bait the float's not there like so many anglers just blow it up to huge size because they've seen it in the jaws film or something well i'm sorry but a poor beagle is not a blue shark the blue shark's a bit dopey and stupid They'll still drag off with it. You could, you, you could put a basketball on the end. They're going to drag it away. They don't care. But Paul Wiggle Sharp's a bit cuter. If he feels resistance, he will spit the bait out. No question. No question at all. So just you know, a bit bigger than the size of a... Of a well, about a grapefruit size, I guess, if you're using a sort of pound mackerel for bait. The other important thing to note about sharks is that they respond well to stimuli in the water. 
Their abilities to detect scent, and in particular blood, are legendary. And I know from my experiences of fishing with you, not only for sharks but other species too, how much weight you place on attracting fish rather than simply relying on them stumbling across your baits. What I'm talking about here is rubby dubby, or chum. Setting up a scent trail in the water and placing the baits into the lane. But poor beagle shark fishing is not like fishing offshore for blues where you can make long uninterrupted drifts creating an unbroken chum trail. Along the north coast it's more a case of regular short drifts covering the same ground. What then is your approach to chumming for poor beagles? Now the difference between poor beagles and, and blue sharks, the blue sharks you set up a drift with your chum or your rubby dubby trail and you do not break that trail. You want to keep that smell slick going constantly for mile upon mile if you can. And when the blue swims across it, it'll turn into it and it'll go where the, where the smell is the strongest, which is obviously coming from the bag onion sack that you've got the, um, the mashed up fish and brown at the side of the boat. So if you break that slick and you go off and try a different area, what happens is that slick's still working effectively until it gets diluted. So any shark comes along to it, it just gets to the strongest end of the slick and there's no baits and there's no boat there, so it's just sort of wasted exercise. Whereas the poor weagle sharks, they're visual feeders as well as scent feeders, they're definitely, definitely scent feeders, and since I've been using a lot of chum there, I've been doing really, really well with the sharks. I mean, the best we did was 10 in two days, just fishing from the dinghy, and that's inshore or offshore, you can get some numbers. So the smell is definitely, definitely a plus factor as far as I'm concerned. In the early season, you might not have any mackerel, so what I do is I, I get mashed up trout, and I use trout with, uh, sometimes I use sand because I want it to sink deeper, and sometimes you use bran and just mash it all up, this trout cuts, it's a messy job, but at least I can go out with at least two big sort of 15 litre paint tubs full of this stuff, and put it over the side, and where the trout are fed on high protein oil based pellets, that oil is stored in their livers, and they have enormous livers, so a lot of, lot of surface slick comes off, and I think that's brilliant for it. Now the difference between fishing a slick for poor beagles and fishing for blues, the poor beagles are, let's say you're drifting over an area a mile across, if you had a mile long drift, those sharks might be in a three or four hundred yard area feeding over a reef where the mackerel and pollock are. Now they'll follow that slick for a little while, but they're going to go back to where the baitfish are, they're not going to follow that slick blindlessly, you know, like a, like a blue shark would. Why would they? Why would they want to leave the food larder that they're living over? They're attracted to your boat and, you know, they swim up off from that food larder of mackerel and pollock. Maybe take your bait, maybe not. It's up to you to, you know, determine are you worth moving for? Are you worth coming away from that mackerel and pollock shoal? So you'll catch one, you might get two, and then it generally goes quiet. Your best bet is to steam the boat back over and do another drift over where you know you hook those pool beagles, because chances are, being pack fish, you will definitely get another. And we would have no problems in working, say, a half mile or a mile square area. You can, you can do a drift and you can try, say, two or three hundred yards inshore, two or three hundred yards outside of it, and you should, during that same state of tide, get more than one pool beagle shark. Give us your thoughts then on bait depth settings. Of course I've caught poor beagles right on the surface. I've actually tossed baits, literally hooked them and no float or anything, the length of the trace and they've been by the boat and they'll take it. But overall I would say they are a mid to bottom feeding fish, you know, just off the bottom. Say if I had to put an average depth, I'd say you want to be one third of the depth of whatever water you're fishing in. That's what you want to put your bait at. 
say a half to a third of the way down in the depth. I think that's um, or a third of the way up from the bottom. The middle to the bottom, I suppose, is uh, is where they're going to be hunting, and that's where I try and put a bait. Now, another point worth noting, although you put lines out with baits, say whole one pound mackerel, a whole one or two pound pollock, and you put them back on balloons, always, always just hang a trace over the side, drop it down 20, 30 feet, put the reel on the clicker, maybe put a lanyard clip on it, stop it going over the side, because I would say we get just as many shark takes from pool beagles right under the boat as we do further back. And I think the reason is the chum is the strongest there and they're just swimming around trying to find the source of where that chum's coming from, that rubby dubby and smell. So it's about a 50-50 on balloons and, and fishing what we call free line baits. Drifting the larger tracks have grown out from Boscastle and Bude during the summer months for the smaller pack fish, which average probably between 60 and 80 pounds, is the main bread and butter side of North Coast poor beagle fishing. There are occasionally the odd bigger fish. While we were filming there a couple of years ago, we managed one of around £170. But the smaller pack fish are most definitely the norm. Great fun and reasonably easy fish to deal with. But still a handful, and under the latest EU regulations, protected as are the bigger fish from being killed or landed. And as with the bigger fish, probably better left in the water and either measured for weight estimation or simply tagged and released. Now I know that you've been tagging and releasing all sorts of sharks of many species for many, many years. So can you now give us a bit of an insight into what that's all about? Over the years, I mean, I can remember being on a boat. Uh, we came round from Appledore, it was. We came round from the opposite end of Heartland Race. It was, that was a, a trip to remember coming through Heartland Race in a 55-foot trawler. When it was wind against tide, it was unbelievable. It was uh, almost worth the trip on its own. But we did get round in those days. They brought everything in because even the skipper could sell the sharks. I can remember then we brought eight Paul Beagle sharks in to, I'm guessing, 140, 150 pounds in. I mean, I personally didn't kill any. It's just what the skipper was doing. Everything then was sold, and uh, fortunately the latest EU regulations are getting protected, which is a good thing, because at the end of the day, as far as I'm concerned, all I want to do is tag them for research for the states, and that's what I do. I do work for the National Marine Fisheries Service. The types of tags are using a dart tags, and you basically just hook the fish. You, I try and fire the barbs off my hooks anyway, not just I'm a sort of crybaby fisherman. I don't want to hurt the shark. You know, It doesn't really keep me awake at night. It's just it's easy to get my hook back. So I get the hook out and release a fish with a minimum of stress. These tags have got a little plastic cylinder of information inside them in various different long line languages, I should call it. So that's going to be Korean, Japanese, Spanish, Portuguese, that sort of thing, with a reward of, I guess, maybe 5 or $10 for the information. Of course, you're never really going to know the information is good, where it really was caught from. I'm quite sure the commercials aren't going to tell you exactly where it was caught from. But of all the sharks I've had tagged, something like, 90-95% of the blue water fish in deep water have all been uh, supplied with a recapture data card showing that they've been what they call dressed out, which is uh, gutted, headed and everything. So um, it's a one-way ticket really if they get caught by a commercial. I've never had a tag return back from any of the pool beagles I've tagged. I've tagged quite a lot. I've had blues travel over 2,000 miles. I've had taupe travel a long way off Spain to be recaptured. I've even tagged when I'm out on those North Cornwall grounds, Bullhuss, and had those recaptured just around the corner a couple of years later off Ilfracoom by other anglers, thankfully, who one assumes let them go again. So there's no real pattern of where the poor beagle sharks actually migrate to or move to. So little is known about them. It's, it's really quite scary, and this is why they, we need to do more tag and research. And the more tag and research is done, 
the more they can learn about how to protect them from the commercial overfishing. Honestly, I don't think the rod and line anglers are even interested in killing the sharks now for records. I think those records will just sit there. We had the chance of a record fish and uh, decided to let it go, but that was a huge shark. I've got a tiny bit of video footage of it, but I've got some very good stills of it by the water right on the wire trace. And uh, it's definitely a 500-pound fish as far as I'm concerned, more than that, actually. And I managed to get a dart tag in it, and I had it so close, I used a 6-inch dart tag stick, as it were, which is built onto a screwdriver, so people will know that I've actually uh, got hold of the back fin, and I'm, uh, while it's thrashing around, managed to get the dart tag in, and we got it in photographs as well. Because a lot of people don't believe that, but, you know, there's probably other shark fishermen that... Uh, you think we can't catch a shark that big in a in a 14 foot dinghy but um actually it's 13 foot nine dinghy but i can assure you, you can get very big sharks in there in fact i'd say old padstow pete's boat has caught more big sharks than any other charter boat that i know without question i would say on big pool wheels so no patterns there really in tagging although they do live a long time because a guy called dennis froud caught one and we released it off the Isle of Wight shark grounds, and I think it's only just been shown up in the last year or two years, and I think it was at uh, Liberty, as they say, for something like 26 years, and that was, then I think it was possibly 140 pounds, and it's gone to about 300 pounds. So the fish that we're catching, three and four, 100 pounds and bigger, those big springtime fish, goodness only knows how old they are. I'm guessing they they could be 50-year-old fish, and that's another reason they possibly need to be protected. Once they're gone, they are literally physically gone. Obviously, with the bigger spring fish hooked up close to the rocks from such a small boat, you don't have much choice, regardless of legislation, other than to deal with them in the water. So talk us through what it's like to hook up, do battle with, and ultimately have to deal with those huge early-season fish. Now, when you get one of these big spring sharks, they're absolutely nothing like anything else. They're deep, they're heavy, <laughs> blistering run you can get. There's no question you've got a big shark on. We don't use anything less than 50-pound tackle. But what you've got to be a bit careful is handling them on the wire because these guys can take you straight over the side or they could even, you know, should a mishap occur and it goes around a cleat or tags around, tangles around the back of the prop leg. Uh, you could have some serious boat issues there with uh, regarding water coming over the side of the boat or getting sunk. So... We time everything, if we can, with a wire trace, and uh, we use welding gloves. We don't just use garden gloves. We use welding gloves that come up the side of your arms a little bit with protection for pulling on that steel trace right at the last few seconds when we want to try and get the tag in there. And or photographs, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but you've really, really got to be on your toes. I've done plenty of marlin fishing and wired up marlin to something like, I think, 762 pounds, the biggest fish I've personally wired up. Um, so I'm all about hanging on to big fish. Even so, a 300-pound pool beagle could go berserk and take you over the side. Measuring, you just got, I've caught so many big sharks, you can pretty well tell once you've had them to over a 1,000, you you know what a 500-pounder looks like. There's no records, there's no prizes for it. Uh, I'm more intent on getting that tag in and getting the fish away. And if we can roll it over, then we can see if it's got claspers for a male fish or if it hasn't, it's a female fish. And it's more important if you can get a straight tip of the nose or the centre of the eye to the centre of the caudal fin measurement. One of the big ones we had, we thought, was nine feet. But when you take from the centre of the eye to the centre of the caudal, nine feet is pretty big sharp. I think everybody else thought we measured the overall, which we hadn't. You, you generally measure it you know, to the fork of the tail as a standard with dart tagging. As for size that he can go, the, the British current British records up off Scotland. I did have a go up there, off out of Scrabster, and that came in, I think it's 504 pounds. There's no doubt there's fish to 600 pounds commercially. They're all females, but as I say, 
if you bang them on the head and you bring them in that fish could be 40 or 50 years old and if they have a few pups then well you know it's, it's, it's fish of the future have gone as well just to get your name in the record books don't get me wrong I might make a decision, a rash decision to bring one in one day, but uh, the older you get, you realise that really nobody cares. As long as you've got video footage or a stills photograph of it, it does it really matter? Not really, does it? Not, not in the overall uh, life cycle of things. But what I would like to do, I'd like to get one of these big spring fish, 350, 400 pounder, on good video footage, maybe with some underwater. That is my target uh, with my boat, 17 foot Wilson my target was when I bought it I want to get three different species over 100 pounds in it so yeah, I've had the Paul Beagle in fact Phil Williams got the Paul Beagle about 160 170 pounds and we've had a 140 pound common skate it's just a blue shark that's just a matter of time so fingers crossed we'll get that one off the list but it would be nice to get a very very big shark up on it and get some good video footage being stuck out for at least 10 hours on an Atlantic facing coast very close to rocks and headlands and having to deal with powerful angry fish of immense proportions surely must get the old adrenaline pump working over time. Because when you hook these big fish I mean it does give you a total buzz it can actually do your head in a bit because you know, when you've had a 80 to 140 pound fish you can pretty well dictate to it what you want as far as pressure in it and stopping it it's going to it's going to be the master to start with and then you're going to start to be mastering it and bring it to the boat for photographing tagging releasing whatever but these big fish they're a whole different ball game you you're more than doubling the size of the fish you would the average angler catches once they get to 300 plus especially the male fish the male fish bite very very hard whether it's because they're there for breeding and they're upset that you've ticked them off i don't know a sport their day who knows but they do fight very hard the uh, the big ones since we've been going down there and I've gone down as well on my own I don't suppose I've seen more than 10 charter boats fishing there in 10 years of fishing I mean really hardly anybody goes down this stretch of coastline so it's totally untouched down there but when you go inshore I mean everybody feels a bit happier fishing close to shore anyway but when you go close to shore and you hook a big fish up we're talking 200 yards off the off the rocks off the land and we're talking 60 feet of water nothing i mean nothing is so shallow it's ridiculous in fact one of the sharks we had we actually were caught in a bit of bad weather and we went into one of the bays it's up off cambake there's no secrets of where we were fishing we're the only people out there that went early spring and we went in to get out of the wind and there's no wood of a lie we anchored as close to the rocks as we could possibly no more than a few hundred feet a couple hundred feet and we were in 40 feet of water and left the shark lines out. When we moved from the shark, where we were shark drifting, I left the bags out, so we had to have the chum trail going, you know, the rubby dubby trail. And we just anchored up there and sat down. Way goes a line, I couldn't believe it. And I fought that fish right to the boat, and we got it, got it up on the wire. It went away, and I pulled so hard, I actually broke a rod in half, and I had to fight the fish sitting down on my butt in the bottom of the boat. I had to climb up, and I was fighting with the stump of a rod and reel. And I got the photographs as well. And eventually we messed around with the fish, got it up on the wire again, tried to get the tag in it. As far as I can remember, it either tore the hook or the hook bust off or something bizarre happened. But we were both pretty pleased we lost that fish because it, it was a rough day's weather as well. But they come right into the rock, right up close. And I think, you know, people will be absolutely staggered because we're quite close to shore. And there's a surf spot there where I've seen people surfing and we fought a shark and we're not more than three or four hundred yards from them. So quite exciting place. One thing I will say about the inshore fishing, everybody thinks they know, uh, we know they're fishing from Cambeek, Cracken and Haven. Well, I tell you what, we're very, very close to there, but there is one reef, as far as I'm concerned, that I found with this other guy, Pete, and 
I don't think either of us are ever going to divulge that. I hope if we do catch a shark to shield all the landscape behind as to where it is. I think the big pool beagles are coming to an area no more than 200 yards by 300 yards. That's my honest truth. I went there with my son and one of his friends and we caught some 60 pounders there in August and they were pack fish were in there and I've never known that before and I think they're feeding over this reef and we know exactly where the reef is you don't need an echo sound you don't need anything you're so close to shore 200 yards off that the hair's on the back of your neck every time we, we drift over what we call it's called the ridge every time we drift over the ridge the hair's on the back of our neck go up and wait for a rod to go off now those fish might possibly be in there to drop pups we don't know we're going to keep it to ourselves because there are still unfortunately although those you know, the sailor sharks and stuff is getting more protected than should be. There's still the unscrupulous commercial fishermen out there willing to chance their arm for such a high-value catch. There's no question of that. I guess there must have been anglers that used to sell their catches years ago to offset the cost of a charter boat. I certainly didn't. I've kept one pool beagle in my life. That was over an island. I've never killed any others. I just leave it to the skipper if he wants to keep one or not. But now, obviously having my own boat, they're all going to go back. As far as we're concerned, if we can get that fish up on the wire... And you can you can almost count, you've got it now. Some of the competition rules for marlin and selfish, they say if you just dab the line with your fingers, the actual trace line, that counts. Well, I can assure you, it really doesn't count with a pool wiggle. You need to be able to take two or three wraps, haul it up, take another two or three wraps, and hold and subdue that fish while it's me- tape measured, and then the tag's gone in, and then the hook comes out. And then, as far as I'm concerned, that is a caught fish. You know, if you bust a fish off, no, it's not caught, is it? It's, it's, it's got away, so... Yeah, it depends on each individual, but uh, if we lose a fish, we lose a fish. We have lost fish and we will lose fish in the future. No question of that, especially in a dangerous area, bad sea conditions, giant fish like we're hooking, something's going to go wrong. And as much as we know and the knowledge that uh, I've got on handling big fish, you know, there's going to be mistakes happen. There's no way around it. So what then does the future hold for you and for the North Cornish poor beagle shark? I think they're there. I just, honest to God, I think they're there. I think uh, March and April and the first week of May, inshore off Cambeek, Tintagel, that sort of area, they're there. There's no question they're there. I think they're still there. When we first caught, we had two big ones in one day. I think we had a, a three and a five. One of the Bew guys, we obviously didn't tell him where we were. He said, that happens every 20 years. It will never happen again. Well, sorry, but we went out the next day and I think we had two 300s. So it does happen again. We went back to the next year and we broke some off. So, I mean, you know, it's the fish are there as far as I'm concerned, but they're there for a very, very, very short period of time over this one particular tiny reef. If we go to the normal spots, it doesn't happen. If we go to this spot on this certain set of three tides, there's only three tides each year, pretty sure over a two-day period we're going to get two, three or four really, really giant fish. We're going to tag them and release them anyway, so we're not really bothered. We just bring them up, haul them up, get that tag in, snip it, get some photographs, and that's the way it should be all fishing, really, to be honest. As for the pool beagle population generally, off the Faroe Islands, they have a you know, full-on commercial fishery up there. They're now trying to push through legislation uh, within the European waters, I think, uh, to get them protected so they're not commercial as they're an endangered species. I personally find it hard to believe they're an endangered species because the recent... I would call it the Welsh uh, fishery, it's not whales at all. You know, it could be the North Cornish or it could be the South Wales. The guys that are going out long distance for the blue sharks, they're catching loads of pool beagles out. They're not getting these giant uh, 400, 500 pounders, but they're getting pool beagles out there. But they're catching plenty of pool beagles. And when we go down off North Cornwall in the summer, you know, the pool beagles are still there. So I'm not quite sure what they mean about they're an endangered species. I'm not disputing what the scientists are saying. I'm just saying where we go, we can still catch them. That's all I can say.
Where I think they might stage a comeback is off the Isle of Wight grounds, and the same reason that we used to catch them after, I reckon, a 20-year layoff of publicity on the North Cornish coast, the same thing has happened off of uh, the back of the Isle of Wight grounds. Nobody seems to be going for them. I've made lots of inquiries. Nobody, you know, I think there's a whole generation of anglers that don't even know how to go shark fishing. That's the honest truth. And this year, 2012, there's a bunch of us with small little 17-foot dinghies and that. And, you know, they're going to use my knowledge. I'm going to supply the chum and the rubby dubby. And we want to get a two or three or four boats going out there and just see if we can latch into something. And, of course, off the back there, there's giant thresher sharks as well. And again, nobody's bothered. Nobody bothers for them. And, you know, you've got to fish the right technique for these sharks. They're not just going to swim up to the boat and jump in. You're not going to catch them on bottom fishing gear. You need to fish the right gear and the right uh, sort of system for them. As for those wanting to give it a go, <laughs> the best of luck with the North Cornish ones. I mean, personally, I feel my way because you lose so many days down there and it's so dangerous, is I'm going to do these three ties each year. They're over the spring tides, they have to, because that coincides with the time to get out, 6 in the morning till 6 in the evening, roughly 7 till 7, 8 till 8. After that, the tides get neap tides, you know, they're dropping off, and you won't get the boat on the trailer. There won't be enough water in, in places like Boscastle to get the boat on the train. I've done it, I've done the mistake, so, you know, I know the times and tides. But it's definitely, definitely worth going, but you certainly, you've got to be really dedicated enthusiast to want to take your own boat down there. And unfortunately, I don't think there's much in the way of charters operating down there to want to go run all the way out, because it's going to be expensive, fuel's expensive, and they've got to run all the way out from Padstow, it's going to cost big bucks, it's going to cost you big bucks, because it gets passed on, you know, the cost of shark fishing, and uh, obviously, you go from there, you're also losing sharking time as well. So the small dinghy is the way to go, you've got to be dedicated and you've got to be fit to launch off of, you know, Bude or Boss Castle. And, you know, you've got to be prepared to put the time in. You've got to take the blanks, which are going to come. You're going to get blanked. You're going to take them on the chin. But I'll tell you what, two of us are down there with dinghies. And I, if there's a slot in that springtime fishing, we're going to be there. After that, I think I'm going to stop trailing all that way because it's like a 400-mile round trip for me. I'm going to go off the back of the Isle of Wight where there's a lot of other guys with boats. I feel a lot safer. And personally, who knows, I might get that fourth species of shark over £100. I might get the elusive thresher shark. Earlier in the recording, you mentioned having two particular Cornish shark fishing ambitions. The first being to bring in one of the North Coast monster poor beagles to the boat and get the whole operation on film. The other, to get out off the South Coast, probably Falmouth, and complete a hat-trick of a £100 plus species from the Wilson Flyer with one of the South Coast big blue sharks. It's almost prophetic really, because within a fortnight of the original recording, which is anyone who turned the TV news on at the time cannot fail to have noticed, phase one was achieved in some style, which I know was ruffled quite a few feathers here and there. And this was quickly followed by the completion of phase two. So perhaps as an addendum, you should fill in some of the details for us here. Yeah, I'm not sure about ruffling a few feathers here and there, but the decision, well, really to go... I was going to do some other fishing at the time, you know, and it just it just gave me a chance to go down to Boscastle and actually launch the boat. There's so few chances to get down there in the spring, which is when these big fish come in there. They probably come in about March, you know. I don't think they're all year round. I think they're in about March. So if you're looking at a spring tide, you've only got three, maybe four days every two weeks. And within that period, you have to have a wind that is east or southerly or barely southwesterly to fish these marks you know because we're only fishing 
two or three hundred yards off uh, the rocks there. But, you know, what I wanted to do was to go tote fishing and start tagging some tote there because the bigger female tote come through in the spring there and just up the coast off North Devon, they do get the big ones. In fact, the British Shore Court record for tote was caught off North Devon and that was what sort of got me thinking there. So we were down there and there was another small boat enthusiast who couldn't get out from Bude. He was uh, launching as well with us. So basically we went down, I went down with Wayne, we launched both boats and off we go fishing, struggle for mackerel, but the big thing is most people that go out, they've got to catch two, three, four buckets full of mackerel before they even start shark fishing because they've got to make their rubby-dubby. Now, I don't do that. I actually go to the trout fisheries, stock up on uh, rainbow trout. It takes me a 60-mile round trip. It's not exactly an easy job mashing all this up and getting rid of the carcasses, but this time I kept the carcasses and had uh, buckets of carcasses and my main chum trout, which will be made up of uh, rainbow trout livers, because they're all full of oil and bran. So uh, off we go, fishing away, and nothing, 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 and then it gets worse, there's absolutely nothing, a couple of small pollock, I think we had maybe, I can't remember now, half a dozen mackerel. And then the other small boat decided uh, he was fishing right near us because he had no rubby at all, you know, he had no chum at all, so he really was on a loser, and he decided to go off looking for a wreck, so... Um, he disappeared off out to sea and I said to uh, Wayne we might just well stay there because I know it's a big shark spot I've previously had a 500 pounder there with another enthusiast who uses a little 14 foot dinghy before as well so you know we know that certainly it's the big fish spot and there we were we had some good fishing with some bull husk which Wayne got his personal best on bull husk several times and we got to I think it was 5, 10 past 5 something like that it was going home time and I just started losing the plot a bit and I thought, you know, we're obviously not going to go out again it is a total blank, no tote, no nothing, just a bull husk a double figure bull husk, mine and we uh, started labelling, or I did Wayne was still bull husk fishing, he was enthusiastic he got his personal pest bull husk into double figures about three times in a row, if I recall correctly anyway, I started labelling all this, uh, all my chum over from the different paint pots I used 15 litre paint tubs full up with it and, uh, and I started dumping literally heads, carcasses, skeletons I was tipping half a bucket to go over the side well within I don't know minute I don't two minutes at the most all this stuff was going down the back the seagulls were all pecking away and eating it all and in Wayne said look at all those gulls take off and they just disappeared totally and next thing this huge poor beagle shark was ripping around on the surface I've got plenty of poor beagle sharks I've never seen one as an aggressive feeding mode as this one it was absolutely a sight to behold. If you can think of those great white shark films where they got them chummed up near the boat and the shark's going crackers, so it looks like it's on crack cocaine. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. We rarely, rarely see Paul Biggles coming up the chum slick with a fin, only very, very occasionally. So this was totally off the wall. But what I did do, shoot all the stuff in. Obviously, all the, all the buckets went over the side then, only on tote gear. So cranking the tote rods in, as we cranking in one of the lines, bang, I felt the grab. Fortunately, just managed to get the TLD25 in a free spool, let it run, said to Wayne, here you go, this is your first shark, bearing in mind that Wayne's never even seen a shark before, never had one. Spooled it back a little bit, very, very short, dropped back, maybe 10 seconds, I think it was, locked it up, started banging away, striking, got the hook up, and initially I thought that fish was about 300 pounds just by the uh, by the dorsal. Once it started emptying the reel, we realised, uh, you know, we got a few problems and we were at anchor, so I buoyed off the anchor while Wayne is uh, getting his reel emptied, because um, you cannot stop these big fish, you know, anything over 300 pounds, you're not going to stop from an anchor boat, it's just going to tank straight off. So we realised it was, was uh, you know, a pretty big fish, 
Put the uh, boy over the side, started the engine, started trying to follow the fish up down the coast, round and round the circles, out to sea, back in close. And the more pressure we got, we were on a Calstar 50-pound uh, tuna stick, so it's um, quite a pokey rod, really, very tippy, because I like using the softer tip rods for tote and stuff, but it's got a bit of beef in the bottom end. And just a TLD uh, 25 reel, we weren't on any big game reels or anything, because after all, we only have the tote. And then we, the fish started running up and down. Now, when it, you get that after let's say 30 or 40 minutes there's a fair chance that fish and I've done it on marlin because I've had a lot of big marlin a lot of big sharks tigers bulls hammerheads when you get that generally it's a sign of very big fish so in between trying to do camera work trying to get filming trying to run the boat not run over the line not get the you know around snags around crab pot lines because you know it was close to shore eventually we get the fish up and then when I pull on the wire, I get the, the gloves on and pull on the wire, it is just like a bulk I've never seen before. It's a huge fat belly on it, width across the shoulders is amazing. So because we had two or three cameras, um, you know, we're always filming, I managed to put one in the, uh, in the stern rod holder so that they could get a two shot of us and then I could, uh, you know, get on with uh, wiring the fish, etc. And obviously there's always doubt, as you're always going to get that with fishes, loads of jealous people out there. I fully understand it. I can sort of see where they're coming from. If they're fishing for sharks and they're catching fish to 100 pounds and you go out in a dinghy instead of a charter boat and you bang into something the size of this, then obviously, you know, everybody's going to be a little bit uh, green with jealousy, I would think. So there's a few few people out there that... Um, I thought, well, I'm going to make absolutely sure I get some good footage of this. So we ran two cameras. And from then on, basically, we got the fish. And as I got it on the wire, Wayne could put the fishing rod down, back the drag, stick it in a holder. And uh, Wayne took over the filming and he got absolutely everything. He even got the dart tag going in. And bearing in mind, we were fishing for taupe. We weren't fishing for shark. So I only had a tiny little six-inch handheld dart tag, not my six-foot one for sharks because obviously we bring taupe into the boat, measure them, sex them, everything like that, and I tag them in the boat. But there's no way you couldn't could get this fish in the boat. So brilliant, brilliant. We got it tagged, got it released, and that's the second fish of 500 plus that I've tagged. I don't think anybody else in the shark fishing world, if I know they haven't, have ever tagged two 500 pounders. And of course, the real buzz for me, we're not out on a charter boat. We're just on a 17-foot dinghy, which a lot of small boat anglers around the British Isles use. So... I've proven it not once, but twice, that if you go out shark fishing seriously and you use enough chum, you're going to get taupe, you're going to get bull hus, you're going to get congas. We've had everything on this chum. And it appears if you use a lot of chum, you're going to get bigger sharks as well. Now, I know from personal experience that you've caught, and in some cases weighed quite a number of very big sharks across a wide range of species, which is why you was able to come up with the guesstimate weight that you did. That said... There are people out there who have disputed your guesstimate. What then would you like to say to those people in defence of the weight estimation you made that day? Yeah, as to the size of the fish, as far as um, past catch records, I mean, I don't have any problems evaluating fish of a size. I mean, I've had eight fish of a thousand pounds, I've had one of fifteen hundred pounds, I've actually tape measured with other people a six gill shot, which is a very long, thin fish, but that fish we tape measured, we actually measured. At 16 feet long, which is a foot shorter than my uh, 17 foot Wilson flyer. The biggest shark I've actually pulled up a beach was a Mako shark, so I know what Mako sharks look like. This one was officially weighed just below the world record from Mauritius, and that was 1,014 pounds. So obviously, it might be people there and say, Oh, I don't think it weighed this, I don't think it weighed that. 
look, you're never going to know what it weighs unless you kill it and hang it up, and I'm not prepared to kill it and hang it up. I've had enough fish hung up, I know what they look like, I know what they weigh. If people don't like it, they don't have to live with it. But as far as I'm concerned, we got the best footage we could. You couldn't get away from seeing the fish tagged. We didn't take it out of the water, we didn't club it to death. We didn't hang out under gantry, we didn't weigh it. All we did was video it, photograph it, tag it and release it. So quite what else we're supposed to do to keep people happy, I don't know. A lot of people did comment that, you know, very, very pleased with what we did. We did it most professionally. We did it the best way we could. And we portrayed angling as the best we could. And in contrast, I have to say, doing this podcast a few weeks back, there was much graphic, horrific pictures of a Paul Beagle shark caught. But it has done a huge disservice to shark fishing around Britain, where we're now getting into tag and release, and we just don't need those gory pictures anymore. As for my tagging activities, I've been doing it, what, 30-plus years? In Ireland, I used to use uh, the cattle tags. I think they used to call them rotor tags, which are dorsal fin tags. We used to use those. Sharks, taupe, I've tagged um, bass over there with uh, little dark needle tags. Tagged monkfish as well. I've had loads of fish recaptured. I'm perfectly competent with sharks. They're as tough as old boots, especially the blue sharks. I've had some of my recaptures that I've tagged personally been recaptured over 2,000 miles away. I've had one that was tagged and we had it out of the water for some time photographing it off the Algarve coast. I think it was about 70, 80 pounds. It was actually released and recaptured the very next day by a longliner. And unfortunately, as happened with longliners, that one was killed. I have been very fortunate. I'm aware I've been very fortunate. I've probably skipped a generation in as much as I was catching marlin in my 20s. Whereas most people, if they get the opportunity to go marlin fishing, don't really start until their 40s. But I've been doing it, you know, 20 years before then. So in that respect, I know what big fish look like. And the same for shark fishing. I started uh, early 70s, cut my teeth on the blue shark like most people did. But rather than just sit there knocking blue sharks out all the time, I did go across and start the big fish hunt, which was uh, big tigers over 500. Bull shark had 455 pounds in the Florida Keys. And of course, there's some huge animals swimming around out over there. As far as claiming records, I think you can't kill fish now. Angling doesn't need the image of hanging up a dead shark. You really don't know. I'd be pushed probably to bring a shark now, even if I got, let's say the ultimate I would want would be, let's break the British record for Mako shark. Well, I've got to kill that fish to bring it in and claim the record. Well, that's a bit bizarre. When they've got species like, I think with a taupe, you can actually weigh them at sea now. Well, you can't weigh physically anything over, let's say, 250 pounds. I don't know how you're going to bring a 250 pound fish in and release it without damaging it. So there's got to be a different method. And I think the British Record Fish Committee need to look at... uh, photographic evidence like they do in marlin tournaments whereby they trail from the jaw of the mouth or the centre of the eye to the centre of the tail fin a pre-measured tape and it must be video and photographic evidence with sworn witnesses as well bit of a pain but there you go and of course then all you're doing is claiming a record for a fish that is x amount long it has no provisions there for that fish weighing light because it's thin or extra heavy for the same length because it's fat so you're still never going to know how much it weighs but as anglers I guess there are still sceptical people out there that don't believe a big fish if it fell on them. And you were convinced that this was the largest shark ever caught in British waters and therefore a potential world all tackle record for the species had it been killed and weighed. As far as I'm concerned, obviously Wayne should be sort of discounted because it was his first ever shark. He just knew it was an absolutely enormous animal which did come across in the uh, video footage and the audio content there. So he was obviously... Hugely impressed with the size of the fish. So I would therefore say it would only be me, with the experience of 
big fish that would say, originally I've got footage in there saying I thought it was 600 pounds. Now, if I thought it was 600 pounds, and I'm 100 pounds out, and that's highly unlikely, the fish would still be 500 pounds plus. So we're never going to know without killing it, which I, I'm not prepared to do. And on the first shark which you had, which was again, was a, was a 500 pluser in another dinghy, and that was caught uh, in April about five, six years ago. Um, for some strange reason, people do think it's the same fish. Now, what do they think? I've kept it on ice, I've kept it in a refrigerator, and they say it was caught on the same boat. Well, excuse me, but I didn't have a boat then. So I've had um, photographic evidence of two fish over 500 pounds of the pool wiggles. Now, as far as I know, the pool wiggle grows to an alleged 600 pounds. So that was the largest one, I believe, in British waters ever filmed. Whether it was the biggest ever, 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 I don't know, I know, without killing it, which I'm not prepared to do. So what can I say? I had it on the wire, I hold it by the dorsal fin, I put the dart tag into it, I physically sure of getting inside its mouth, can't get any closer to it. People just have to take my word for it, because I'm not going to try and justify that by killing a fish, just to satisfy those people so I can say, I told you so. If they don't like it, tough. They don't have to watch the video, do they? If you're a shark fisherman of any repute, I think, possibly you might think, do you know what, that is quite a big fish actually. One fish caught in UK waters that was allegedly bigger than Wayne's poor beagle is described by David Turner in his 2012 book The Shark Fisherman as being a monstrous great white, though again, it wasn't brought into the boat. I've not actually uh, read this book The Shark Fisherman, which I think is just dealing specifically uh, with the area of Falmouth and Mako sharks. But having had Mako sharks myself, I've had, uh, I guess I must have had about 20 Makos. I don't actually know David Turner. I don't know uh, of him as a writer or a fisherman as such. I think it's probably on a different generation. I was possibly fishing out of Lou in the early 70s, starting, I think it was about 1971, was it? So I can't really speak for this uh, story about a great white shark that's referred to. Of course, this is the same old story. I mean... You're never going to know until somebody kills a shark. But I suppose if somebody, as I understand it, caught a great white and, and had a huge fish of, of some what, 12, 14 feet long and had it on the wire and previous to that had been bringing all the mako sharks, killing them and hanging them out, why would you not bring that fish in? I don't know, because at that period that wouldn't have been a protected species, would it? I'm sure back then, uh, well, I guess this was in the 60s, I don't know because I don't, I don't have any just hearsay on the story, but... Surely if somebody was out there at uh, that period, they were killing blues, hanging them up, photographed the big hero shots, killing the Mako shots, hanging them up, big hero shots. Well, hang on, if you had a great white shark, good Lord, you know, you're going to upset too many people by killing a great white and bringing it up and hanging up. And this is like, say, 40 or 50 or 60 years ago. I just find it a little curious that if you've got this thing on the wire and they had gaffes, it said, why didn't they gaff it? Why didn't they bring it in? Why didn't they claim a record? A bit strange, but... Uh, I'm not going to knock it because you never know a great white shark could turn up in British waters. Maybe it might have been mistaken. Could have been a large mako shark. This, you know, this sort of similar. Even with a pool beagle years ago, they were mistaken as makos and vice versa. The mako was mistaken as a pool beagle. So until you look at, you know, the white smudge behind the dorsal on the pool beagle, the basal cusps of the teeth on the pool beagle the narrowing of the eyes, the white stomach on the mako, and bearing in mind, I've caught them, so I do know what they look like. I've had, I guess, about 20 makos now. I don't know uh, 
that this other gentleman how many mako sharks he's had but um, I've had about 20 odd mako sharks and I've caught them from the Indian Ocean the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean so I'm fairly well travelled in the mako shark world there no question of that yes I'd certainly like to catch one in British waters and I think most shark fishing of my age probably would do possibly they're still there I think the last one was actually hooked up on a commercial feathering machine you know a long line by the most famous mako shark man of all which was Frank Vinicom who I've personally met many times and I've also had a privilege of seeing his photo album and there's absolutely no getting away from the photos in his books that he's got there he's got things like whiting of 10 pounds ling of gargantuan proportions he's had I think if I recall correctly 8,000 sharks 10 of which were Makos and I think Frank had I would say nearly all those Makos were over three, 350 pounds what can I say the guy's as good as gold I think he's about 89 years old and he is still fishing the big thing is you get a lot of armchair anglers around they knock out one or two fish they think they know all about it Frank, excuse me, is still out there. He is the main man. He is still fishing at 89 years of age as a commercial guy. He is still, as of 2012, taking out people on blue shark trips and mako shark trips. I know because just literally two weeks ago, I was down there interviewing Frank Vinicom and he told me he's got a guy that he's taking out trying to catch a mako shark, which is what I'm after myself as well. Um, If I catch one, brilliant. If I don't, who cares? I'm not going to let it eat away at me. I've caught Mako before. They're only a shark. Would be nice to get one in British waters, I have to say. But I assure you, it's not going to be killed and weighed just to satisfy somebody who's a disbeliever. Because what I find, I won't say it's infuriating, because I'm not one of those to hit the keyboards or to go on these uh, these forums and start uh, writing disparaging remarks about people's fish or other people's catches. I don't do that, it's not the way I work, but obviously there are a few people out there that uh, do that. But I find it sort of disrespectful when the experience I've had over the years, I would say, would be second to none. I can stand in any any bar room, if you like, and I don't drink much, but I can stand there and hold my own with a list of fish, which, unfortunately, I may have banged on the head and hung up, and I have got the photographs to prove it, and I do know the exact weights. And I've been around... Uh, a lot more than most people I've been on the shark circuit a long time possibly more than most and I possibly might have had a lot more big fish than most so you know if there's a few disbelievers out there yeah I'll let them get on with it sit in their armchairs they're not going to get out the only chair I'm in is the fighting chair on my boat as for Wayne well man I'm telling you he is still flying he's still up there high as a kite he is a a true fisherman he's been fishing as a kid Wayne's 45 he comes from uh, Haven in Hampshire He's been fishing as a child, he's had his own boats. He's got, ironically, a Wilson Flyer 17, exactly the same as me. Got a 60 Suzuki on the back of it, and it's the full cabin version. But he's never had the real biggies, i.e. the sharks. And since I took him down to help me out and launch a boat, and he's had that big Paul Beagle, man, he has set a light. And any trip I get, because of my age, I need all the help I can get. I'm still fishing, but launching the boat is getting a bit of a chore. So I take Wayne along a shotgun, and if Wayne wants to catch a fish and helps me photograph, so much the better. So Wayne is absolutely shark mad now, um, to such an extent, and this is sort of hot off the press, literally about three months after we had that um, big pool beagle shark, I decided on another last minute hunch to go down to Falmouth and 
talked to the legend himself, the Mako man himself, Frank Vinicom, the top Mako man in my eyes in British history. And Frank says, you want to go 15 miles southeast, my love's out past St. Anthony Light, and you'll have sharks aplenty out there and be able to chance of a Mako if you drift over the wrecks. That's as close an accent as I can get to Frank, but was he right or was he right so I went with Wayne we went out and it started to be foggy we steam out take high sea drifter out my 17 foot Wilson flyer with 40 pounds of chum or so on maybe a bit more all minced up we go out there and start fishing secretly hoping you know is a mako going to come along no but we were ravaged by blue sharks so hungry it was unbelievable I even had one bite the propeller we had them a two different fish attacking the chum bag that we hang over the side Another tiny boat came out, I think it was an Orkney, a husband and wife. They pulled up alongside us because they actually thought we were fishing over a wreck. We had no idea where we were, we just went where Frank told us to go. He's the man, so we went where he said. We're the first shark, incidentally, within five minutes, so thank you, Frank, for that. That was a good information on that, Mark. Anyhow, these people pulled up alongside us, and I said, look, you know, you, you're right in our slick. And the wife looked over the side, and she said, oh my God, there's sharks under the boat. And the sharks were actually under their boat, so we suggested they drop a, a, a wire trace over. They only had light wire, sort of taupe or conga wire. They hook up a shark about 70 pounds and smash the guy to pieces. Meanwhile, we've got one biting propeller, another one cruising the boat. Wayne's uh, struck in and fighting 120 pound blue. Then the guy loses another one about 50 pounds. Way goes the line. I've got it all on film. Bang. You'll see the trace go and you will, I hope at one stage, see our DVD of that day's fishing. Of course, you might dispute it, but we hooked 13 sharks, we tagged 11 sharks, and we got one, wait for this, not on a saltwater fly rod, I got one of over 50 pounds on a trout rod. So Phil Williams' fishing website is the first to know about this one, because I've kept it to myself, because other filmmakers making blue sharks will be desperate to copy it, and try and catch a blue shark on a fly rod. I haven't just done it on a fly rod, I've done it on a standard reservoir trout rod and we've got it all on film so brilliant i'll tell you what this filming really can hook you big time so wayne now has had blue sharks to 120 pounds poor bigger sharks well over 500 pounds and i can tell you now because the isle of wight is the place especially out by the Avon falls for the thresher shark we are hunting down the chance of getting out and getting a thresher and at the moment i believe i'm the only person in british history to have three different species over a hundred pounds in a tiny 17 foot dinghy no big charter boats just a dinghy so small boat anglers can hold their heads up high we got at least as much chance if not more when it comes to big fish in a small boat whatever the real weight of that poor beagle you had to the boat off boss castle that may afternoon there's no arguing with the fact that it was a huge fish Detractors and non-detractors alike would all have loved to have had it on the end of their line. And you can count me in on that one too. Indeed, had the weather been kinder two weeks earlier when we'd planned to do the trip, it could so easily have been me on either the camera or the rod. But that's fishing. Either way, it wouldn't have mattered to me, just so long as I'd been there to see it. My thanks then to Graham Pullen, not only for his information regarding North Cornish poor beagles, but also for talking us through the big one, which he and Wayne Compen caught off Boscastle in May 2012.